Hey everyone, welcome to the third episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Craig O'Shaughnessy, the leading strategy analyst for the ATB Tour. He recently spent three years on Novak Djokovic's team as his data and strategy analyst, helping him win four major titles and regain the top spot in the rankings. In today's episode, we're going to discuss how he got his start in analytics, what your strategy should be in the first four shots of a point, why coming to the net is still an effective play, and what makes him cringe when he watches a tennis match. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Craig, welcome to the pod. Well, I'm here in beautiful, stunning Melbourne, Australia, and it's uh, great to talk to you this morning. Yes, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're going to be busy down under, but, you know, first thing I wanted to get into is, you know, you had a, a long career as a player, you played in college, and then obviously have become a world-renowned coach, but at what point in your career did you start to use data and, and tagging as a way to effectively choose the correct strategy to match? I graduated from Baylor University in 1991. That same year was the first time the professional men's tour started recording official data. So before 1991, we have nothing. You know, we're, we're guessing. And obviously, you know, there's a lot of good tennis and a, a lot of things happened in our sport before 1991. So when I finished college, I have a journalism degree. I'm figuring out, do I go to the journalism side? I'd already worked for a newspaper in Australia for about a year and a half before I went to college. So I really enjoy that side of life. But the tennis side kind of drew me over there and, and I went with the coaching route. And, um, you know, very soon after, I'm like, how do I help the players that I'm working with, whether they're juniors at a club or, you know, starting to work on a professional tour, how do I help them win more matches? And I'm kind of looking at the, the big picture, the whole pie. And, you know, there's technique that needs refining. There's, you know, the agility on the court. There's fitness. There's strength. There's diet. But the one thing that stood out to me the most was this patterns of play. And in order to figure out which pattern is better than the other, is it actually better to hit a forehand than a backhand? Is it good to go to the net or stay back? It, you know, is it good to be a consistent player or is it better to be an aggressive player? So in order to figure out all of those questions and to help the players that I'm working with win more matches, you just need data. You, you need you need to figure out, you know, it, it's the percentages that are going to dictate, you know, what is right and what is wrong, or certainly what is better. So early on, what was the most significant thing that you learned through the video and, and the data that maybe disproved something you previously believed to be true by your feel or just something that you intuitively thought was correct as a player? Yeah, I would go back to probably 1998. There was, uh, I'm running an academy in Albury and I have some players staying with me. There's probably five players that, that are there. One of them um, was an extremely good junior. He would go on a couple of years later to be the number one ranked junior in Australia, Andrew Bronneberg. And they had recorded the Washington uh, ATP final, which was Andre Agassi versus Scott Draper. And they came home one evening, they're sitting down. You know, after the final, they put the VHS tape in the recorder and they start watching it. And I'm sitting, having dinner. I, I'm back at another table, but I'm kind of watching the match from afar. But most importantly, I'm listening 
to what these kids are saying. And Draper starts hot. In the, in the first 10 points, he's hit six winners. And I'm watching this from a viewpoint is that it's completely unsustainable. Um, Scott is going for winners because he has to. Andre is controlling the point, but at this stage, Scott's kind of getting lucky at the, at the end of the point. But I'm listening to the to the players in the room watching the TV, and they are enamored with what Scott is doing. They're loving what Scott is doing. So I, I keep listening and keep watching, and it, it gets to two all in the in the first set, and they're like, you know, we, we kind of pause it, and I ask them, I was like, well, who do you think is going to win? And they're like, well, we think Scott's going to win because we didn't know the the final result. Because he's, you know, he's hitting more winners. He's playing more spectacular tennis. You know, he's kind of redlining it. And they're like, Scott's got this match. There's no problem. At the end of the match, Scott doesn't win another game. It's 6-2, 6 for Andre. So after dinner, I go back and sit down with them and pause things. So, you know, Andre, I would say, where do you think Andre's serving? Scott being a lefty, the backhand's a little bit weaker. He slices it a lot. And I'm like, where do you think Andre's serving? They're like, well, probably wide to Scott's backhand. I'm like, well, where do you think that ball's coming back? Cross court to Andre's forehand. And then where do you think Andre's going to hit that ball? So once we go through those those first four games and get to two all, these kids all of a sudden, because we're pausing and asking questions and adding up what's happened so far in the match and, and looking at the patterns of play, when and essentially when a point had started and flowed initially through the ad court, which is... Scott's lefty forehand to Andre's backhand. Scott had won all six points. When the point flowed through the juice court, Andre went one five and lost one. So it was a very kind of even, obvious game plan. You know, juice court points were favoring Andre and ad court points were favoring Scott. But overall, Andre was understanding that and Andre was countering that strategy by starting to play more through the middle. So we finished at about one in the morning. And these kids said at the end that they'd learned more in that period of time analyzing those first four games of that match than they had in their entire tennis careers combined. So I finally figured out video, but the, it's not only just watching video, it was the ability to pause the video. It was the ability to pause the video midpoint and ask the question, where should this go and why should it go there and where is it coming back? Because the kids, it was kind of the first time that they've contemplated a point from a two-way perspective. So that really stood out to me and, and helped a lot. I then did 2000 Australian Open, a couple of matches there. There was the round of 16, Scott, uh, excuse me, Mark Philippoussis against Andre Agassi, where Andre wins that in four. And then the final against Kafelnikov, where he wins in four. And so I put three of those, I, I got the VHS tapes and, and, and burn it all to a DVD. Um, so I, I start with the first four games against Draper, then a few points against Philippoussis, then, then a few points against Kafelnikov. And what you see with Andre is that he's modifying his game based on these three opponents. Against Scott, it was pounding the juice court out wide of the backhand. Against Mark, it's pounding the backhand out wide now in the ad court because he's a righty, but also running him hard to the juice court when he's stuck over there. And against Kafelnikov, it's just running him side to side, making it an athletic battle. So the kids could see that Andre's modifying his game based on the opponents. It's not just doing exactly what he wants to do. He's, he's plugging into the weaknesses. So, you know, th this is all in the 1998 to 2000. And 
you know, that, that's where everything came together for me, you know, to, to look at the court and to understand it in a different manner. You know, you're talking about Andre changing his game plan, you know, to the weaknesses of his opponent on that day. Do you think you still want to focus? I've heard you say this before, but you want to focus more on your opponent than yourself, that you are the second most important person on a court. But does that philosophy change based on the level of your opponent? So if you're you're much uh, stronger than your opponent, do you still maintain that philosophy? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. And so it's like a slide rule that goes back and forth. You know, is, is the attention more on me and what I want to do today? Is the attention more on the opponent? You know, working with Novak for three years, winning four slams during that period of time, getting him back to number one in the world, you know, it, it, that's the ultimate test. That's the ultimate test. You know, do I go in to the strategy sessions with Novak and say, Novak, you're just, you're just flat out better than this other guy on the other side of the court. Just do what you want to do. And that's not the conversation that I would continually have with him. And it wasn't the feedback that he was searching for. Our first discussion was uh, the 2017 Australian Open, where, where we first got together. And we're at Melbourne Park. We're in the player restaurant. We sit down. It's Marion Vida and Novak and myself. And, you know, the first question is like, Novak, you know, how can I best help you? And his answer said, was great. There's three things, three things that I want from you. The first is uh, my game. The first is understanding me. He goes, for sure, there's things that I'm doing on the court that I think are right, but your data may prove that it's maybe not the best option. It's not the highest percentage option. Um, I want you to study my game. I want you to figure out, you know, the things that I'm doing well that I should do more of and the things that um, areas that I need to improve. Um, so that was kind of number one. The second is every time I step on court against an opponent, I want a game plan. I want to know about them. I want to know their strengths and weaknesses. I want to know, you know, I don't want, don't want any surprises when I walk out there. There'll be, you know, some players that I've never played before and there'll be some players that maybe haven't played great, but all of a sudden have got hot in the tournament. We need to know why. We need to be ready for that. And then the third thing was, I want you to pay particular attention to my main rivals, the guys at the top. And, and just we need to know those guys inside out. We need to know them better than, than they know us. So through those three years, the majority of the time, almost you know, 95% of the time, the discussion was always about the opponent. The discussion was how to plug into that opponent. And I'm, yes, I'm constantly giving Novak feedback about who he is as a player and what he does well. And um, you know, should he be hitting more forehands than backhands? And you know, the answer is absolutely yes. You do have the world's best backhand, but the forehand is still the bigger weapon. The sword and the shield analogy was great for him. The data analytics on where he's hitting winners was great for him. So, so yes, in general, there will be days that you'll go out there and step on the court. And it's just like, I don't care who's on the other side of the court. It may as well be a fog over there. I'm just hitting into this fog. I can't see the person. I don't know if they're left-handed or right-handed, but you know, I'm going to do what I like to do, and that's going to be good enough. Yes, there will be days like that, but the majority of the time is not spent that way. The majority of the time is doing your homework on the opponent, knowing their tendencies, forcing them into lower percentage options that they don't want to be playing. And, um, you know, it's, you've got to know your enemy. You've got to know what's happening on the other side of the court. So if they get hot for a little bit in a part of the court, it's okay. We wait it out. We know that, you know, you're not that great in that area. We know over two sets that things aren't. Uh, you're not going to continue this. So, yeah, I, I'm still a, a huge believer and proponent of the opponent 
is the most important person on a tennis court, not yourself. When you were scouting for Novak and looking at his opponents, how did you control for the tactics that they were using on that particular day? So, for example, if Agassi was playing a lefty, he might be serving wide in the deuce court to the backhand more often than he normally would. How would you control for that when scouting an opponent? Um, There's a couple of areas there is that because our game plan very much focused on the opponent, you know, it, it was... If he's, you know, if Novak's playing, you know, it was it was basically very much modeled on what Andre was doing in those three matches. If if he's playing a lefty, we're going to play more to this part of the court. If he's playing a righty with a weak backhand, you play more to this part of the court. You, you know, so so Novak's tactics were constantly evolving, and I would talk to him all the time and say, "Good luck to the opponents trying to scout you because we're constantly morphing and adapting to the opponent." So, you, you, you know, I, I think it would be very difficult to watch five of Novak's matches and seeing him doing the identical thing against all five opponents. It, it just, it's just not happening because he's changing up based on, based on the opponents. So that was, that was one thing. And the second thing was there was areas of his game that the statistics that, you know, I sit on the side of the court and watch the match or I, I'm on the other side of the world recording the match. Um, and I learned this coaching Rajiv Ram back in, I think, 2011. So, you know, the, the story starts, uh, I'm at Wimbledon, you know, it, it's later in the afternoon. I think I just uh, worked with um, Melinda Zink and she wins, uh, she beats Sam Stos at Wimbledon, who was like the number eight seed. So we go to the Dog and Fox, we're celebrating the victory. It's all about the game plan. Melinda followed it perfectly. And in walks, um, in walks Rajiv and, and a good friend of mine, Andy Miller. And, you know, we're like, hey, Rajiv, how you doing? You know, we're, we're up here celebrating, get a big win. And he's like, well, I got knocked out of qualies. My rankings dropped. You know, I won Atlanta. Excuse me, I won Newport a year ago, but all those points are gone. I'm now back to like 180 in the world. I'm 28 years of age. Um, you know, I'm being told that I shouldn't serve in volley. I've been told that, you know, it's all about the baseline. I'm trying to adapt my game, but I'm just, it's just not working. So I, I talked to him like, you know, your game style is to go forward. Your game style is serve and volley. Your game style is go to the net. And I'm like, I don't know who's telling you to stay back, but, you know, you could be one of the slowest players to ever, to ever play our sport. Um, it's just not your, it, it's just, you know, not your wheelhouse to do that. And, and finally he said, well, I've hired a fitness trainer to get, to get fitter and faster. Um, and I know this guy is actually from my hometown in Australia, um, Robert Ballard. And is a, is a great friend of mine. And I said, well, you know, the first thing you need to do is fire your fitness trainer and start working with me because I'm going to teach you the patterns of play that you need. And so we kind of got into it and it got a little argy-bargy you know, throughout the evening. And the other guys are saying, well, it's all about fitness. I'm like, it's not about fitness. It's about patterns. And, and it's about you running those patterns. So the night ended. I wasn't quite sure, you know, if, if Rajiv was going to call me again or if we, we needed a couple of months to let that simmer and settle down. But you know, about a week later, he calls me up. And he's like, I've been thinking a lot about what you said. It completely makes sense. Let's get started. So the first tournament was Atlanta. And he wins a couple rounds of qualifying. I go to Atlanta for main draw. Um, he's got Dimitrov, I believe, in the first round and beats him in straight. Then he's got Hewitt in the second round, beats him in three, and then has match points against Ryan Harrison and loses. But here's, here's where this story comes together. 
I sat on the side of the court and watched all three matches. So you think from a coaching standpoint, my understanding of those three matches is through the roof. But I went a step further. I, I, you know, I was the coach that bought my camcorder and a pole and I hung it up at the, at the end of the court. I was the only coach doing it back at the time. And I video the match. So then you're like, Craig, you've gone the extra step and you've got the video of the match to study. Well, there's another level is that I put it into Dartfish and I tag the match. And so I've got all the all the analytics of the match as well. And I've got everything cut up. So you, you would say, Craig, there's no possible way you could learn more from doing this. But there was another way. So I, I looked at all three matches and I'm like, OK, Rajiv, you know, th this is happening. This is happening. And then by accident, I happened to pull. I didn't even know I could do this. But I happened to pull all three matches in to the tagging panel at once, which made all the analytics combine. And all of a sudden, I look at it, it's like, oh, this is interesting. I've got three matches of analytics together as, as one unit. And all of a sudden, I look and notice the opponents had 18 backhand winners and Rajiv had one. And that's kind of a red flag. I'm like, you know, that's that's way off. You know, he won two of the matches, had match point in the other. 18 to one is very lopsided. So I go and look at Rajiv's one backhand winner. It's a net court. So it may as well be zero. So he's played three matches and had zero backhand winners. I'm like, geez, is his backhand really that bad? So I, look, I go, well, hopefully he's hitting backhands down the line, forcing forehand errors. So I go and look at the opponent forehand errors. I think there were 54. There was not one of them, not one, forced from a uh, regime's backhand down the line. So I'm like, we've got ourselves a real hole here. His backhand is not only not producing any winners whatsoever, but it's not forcing any forehand errors down the line, which backhand down the lines it should be. So I talked to Rajiv about this. I'm like, do you realize that you had basically essentially no backhand winners in these three matches? Like, yeah, it's a real hole. You know, I, I lose to lefties and I lose to righties with, with a much better backhand. So we figured out from that, that hitting his backhand cross court was basically counterproductive. You know, he Rajiv loves to stand in the middle of the court, hit forehands. Um, he's kind of old school. He's not about the runaround forehand. He's about the juice court forehand, hitting it through the juice court. So to cut you know, the, a long story short, for the next year, he goes from 180 back into 80 in the world. Um, we had him serving the bowling all the time. We had him chipping and charging on returns all the time. And we had him basically hitting no backhands cross court. The backhand went to position B, which is down the middle, slightly in the juice court. It comes back slightly in the middle to the juice court to him, and he's crushing forehands. So my goal as a coach was to get him out of – out of the wide backhand position of the court, and we were able to achieve that. But it was only because I luckily stumbled on the 18 versus one, which I would never have known if I hadn't have uh, put all those things together. So that's kind of the evolution of strategy and, and how how you can help a player and, and how something very small and almost a mistake um, helped resurrect his singles career. That's a really neat uh, story, and I just had him on my last podcast. Yes, my favorite. My, my my favorite part might be that you called him the slowest player in the history of the sport. <laughs> I think he probably is. I mean, yeah, I, you know, you're not it's wrong. His credit. It's his credit yeah. that he managed that that lack of speed so well. That is so funny. All right, let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit. You're you're kind of famous for uh, bringing awareness to the fact that most points are four made shots or less. Do you think it's more important to learn how to make the first two shots you hit or to learn how to make your opponent miss those first two shots? Good question. So you've got a, a first serve, a first serve return, uh, a second serve, a second serve return, 
and then a serve plus one and a return plus one that follow that. So if the and they're four very, very distinct battles that produce wildly different statistics. So if you're serving with a first serve, your job and, and I learned this from making highlight reels of, of videos for players. So the highlight the typical highlight reel from a player starting points with their first serve is that the highlight reel is going to be full of three shot rallies. So the serve went and the and the length of a rally is predicated by the ball landing in the court, not being struck by the strings. So a three shot rally is the, the serve went in, the return went in, and the serve plus one is in. The next shot can be hit, but but it's, it has to be an error in order for it to be a three shot rally, or that serve plus one ball is a winner. So the highlight rule is full of those, and it's full of return errors, um, and it's full of the of the serve ending up at the net. The number one time a player will appear at the net is in a three shot rally. So that's what we're looking for there. So when you're hitting first serves, that's what you're after. You're not, the longer the point goes, the, the halo effect of the serve, the halo effect of the serve lasts for two shots. So you get a three shot rally and a five shot rally. And essentially all odd numbered points can only be won by the server. So if the rally length is one, three, five, seven, nine, eleven, the server had to win it. Two, four, six, eight, ten, the returner had to win it. So essentially behind the first serves, you want three shot rallies and you want, you want to be at the net. So there's a lot of offense around that. On second serves, way different. You're lucky. You, it's a great day at the office if you win 50% of your second serve points. So the highlight reel is actually what I'm looking for in on second serves is reduce the double faults. That's a big deal. Let's not shoot ourselves in the foot. So let's let's push. You know, zero is not the number we're after, but you know, one or two is fine. But the huge thing is to survive. The, the serve plus one. So the returner is going to be aggressive. They're probably coming down the middle of the court at you. And what happens the most, you know, the number one rally length in tennis is a one-shot rally, which is a return error. Uh, but the, the second most prolific rally length is, is, um, is three, then it's two. And the two is the serve went in, the return went in, and, uh, and then there's an error. So um, behind a second serve, you're looking to survive. You're looking to not make a serve plus one error. On the, the flip side, on the returning, you want to make against the first serve, you want to make the first serve return. And then almost always you're going to be on defense hitting a backhand and you want to make that ball cross court. So that's about surviving. But against the second serve, you want to attack. So you want to you want to really get after the second serve. And most importantly, you want to hit a return plus one forehand. So four different battlefields, each with very different analytics. And you've got to kind of switch on and off between them in order to be as successful as you possibly can be. So, so that's how I've grown to teach it. And, and you know, the, the analytics have taught me that, yes, if you're hitting a first serve or a second serve return, you're on offense and you're looking to, to immediately force errors. If you're hitting a second serve or a um, first serve return, you're looking to survive the first four shots. You're looking to extend past that and, and, and get into, get into a, you know, the five through eight range where you can run a successful pattern of play. With the pro players you're working with now, what percentage of their practice do you recommend that they work on their serve and return plus ones? Good God. I, I just you know, I was just with Alexi Popperin, um, who I'm now coaching. We were 10 days in Marbella. We were seven days in Dubai preseason. The first four days, the only thing he hit was returns, four days of returns. And then basically for the rest of it, 95% was serves return surplus one return plus one 
um, and, and that's outside of him playing, you know, practice sets. But, you know, we, did, we also did a lot of volley technique, a lot of approach and volley, and some patterns. But, you know, again, he's six foot five, and that's who he is as a player. It'll be different, a little bit different if I'm working with Diego Schwartzman, but not much, but, but not much. Diego's still, um, you know, like all players on the planet, he's a first strike player. And, he, you know, winning and losing happens way more in zero to four than anywhere else. So today's game is not about just going out and rallying and hitting balls. You know, that's what we did before we had match analytics, before 1991. Now we have the match analytics. You want to cut the match court up into segments and take those segments and go to the practice court and practice those specific segments. That's great advice. I mean, you've been to plenty of junior tournaments, I'm sure, in your career. And you said it even at the pro level, it's it's a lot of just ground strokes back and forth. And now that the information is out there, I'm, I'm still surprised that I haven't seen those practices change that drastically. I still see a lot of that hitting back and forth. And I know consistency is important and you want to feel good, but I, I'm, it still shocks me a little bit. Does that surprise yeah. you? Yeah, you know, it, 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 there's, it's a really good point. There has been changes made. You know, I, I speak each year at the Australian Open Coaches Conference, and there's so many coaches here in Australia that will come up to me and say, I've changed my practices. I'm doing way more serving. I'm doing way more returning. And, and, and you know, it's, it's an honor to give those coaches the information and let them run with it and do it. Um, I consult with the Italian Federation, and I know for a fact as I go around the country, and, and I speak to all of their coaches um, that they're, they're making big changes over there. But it's not always the same. I think probably the States is still stagnated in the idea that let's let's just hit balls. And, you know, it, it, there's a purpose. Like I own a, a couple of years ago, I bought a, a little portable ball machine. It's phenomenal, you know, but I use it to stand next to the player. You know, I've got a remote control on my phone to work on their technique, but to also, you know, I'm putting them in position C, which is the runaround forehand. They're hitting deep to position C. So we're working on technique and tactics at the same time. You know, there's, there's almost never in any of my practices is the player just going out on the court and going, okay, we're just hitting back and forth. There's no control factor. There's, there's, you know, there's no purpose. It's, it's just rallying to, for the sake of hitting a ball. So I, I think in pockets around the world, federations and, and academies, and coaching groups have really embraced it, but you know it, it's like everything. It, it it hasn't it hasn't caught on everywhere yet. But you know, it, good, good luck trying to trying to avoid it because you know it's just everything is based on the analytics of the match. And um, you know we've got tons of uh, of junior data now. We've got tons of college data, so we see where the juniors are going to. And you know it's just a progression to the pros. And you know you you have to be. You have to be good in zero through four. You have to be in order to be um, maximizing your potential. Let's talk a little bit about what happens between the points. Uh, on your website, Brain Game Tennis, you have uh, a whole course about how you should be handling between the points, uh, more of an emotional, mental course. I saw a fantastic video of Tiger Woods at the 2008 US Open, and his pre-shot routine was almost exactly 13.2 seconds for every shot. I mean, the dude was a robot. Do you keep any data of the players that you have that holds them accountable to their pre-shot routine and then maybe the effect that has on the resulting point? Absolutely. You know, the the first course that I put out was the 25 golden rules of single strategy. Then I did the doubles version, 25 golden rules of double strategy. 
The next course was um, called Between the Points. You know, I value what happens between the points so much to the final outcome. And, and that's why I, I went with that really early on as, as one of the early courses. You know, there's always two matches that you play. And it's the, you know, what's happening during the point and what's happening between the points. And between the points, you know, the routine that, um, that, that the player's doing is so incredibly important. You know, you're exactly right when you talk about, you know, is it is having that routine? And, and especially when we talk about Tiger Woods, having that routine between the points, it, it, it's so critical and so vital. And it, it helps you, you know, deal with the adversity. And, and I think, you know, one of the best things I've told players is that, is the analogy of the storm cloud, is that every single match you play, there is going to be adversity in there somewhere. Don't go out on the court thinking no adversity is going to come your way. There is. There's going to be moments in time. There's going to be break points. There's going to be when the opponent starts coming back at you, all of a sudden you start missing some points, maybe you get a little tight. That's normal. Those moments are going to happen. So the storm cloud will come. It may come early in the match. It may come in the first game. It may come in the last game. It may come at the start of the second set. Who knows? We don't know yet. But you control two elements of that storm cloud. You control how big it becomes. So when that ad adversity moment arrives, are you going to blow it out of proportion? Are you going to give it oxygen? Are you going to you know, blow onto the flames and make it bigger than it needs to be? Or are you going to accept that it's there, accept that it was always coming, and deal with it in the right way and deal with it much more in a mental manner than an emotional manner. So we want to reduce the size of that. And secondly, we don't want it to hang around for long. So you also control how long it stays there. You control the size and you control the, the uh, duration. And, and that really helps players understand that, you know, these moments are coming. It's, it, the job is not to avoid these moments. The, you know, storm clouds come, it's guaranteed they're coming. The deal is, is how, how do you handle that adversity? So that, that's a big one. And the second one that, that I enjoy is I call it the leaking cup, where imagine you have a styrofoam cup and it's, you take a pin and you put a little hole right in the bottom, just a little hole. And so it's just got this slow leak. And I make the analogy that the cup is your brain and the water that fills it is, is your thoughts, is your strategy is, you know, what's going on. It's all the emotions as well that's in the match. It's, it's, it's um, the mental, emotional component. But to understand that the cup's leaking. So what you want to do, that water represents the positive game plan, the, the, the way that you're figuring out the opponent, the strategy adjustments that you're making. It's all the things that are positive that you need to, um, to do well to win the match. But because it's leaking it has the potential just to go to zero and there's nothing left in there. You know, it's like a period of time. I started so well, I was thinking, but, you know, after the first set, I, I didn't know what I was doing. So I tell them that you always must be filling the cup up with positive thoughts and um, the right game plan. You need to have an awareness of that game plan. You need to have an awareness of what's going on, on the other side of the court. You need to know when an opponent's backhand is all of a sudden breaking down, when the forehand is getting hot. You need to know these things. So you're always filling the cup up with little thoughts of, um, of game plan and, and positive thoughts on how you need to handle yourself. And if you don't fill it up, all of a sudden there's, there's air in there. And, and that air represents negativity and represents um, just nothing at all that's going on in your mind. So if you're not filling it up and putting water in that cup constantly throughout the match, 
there's a really good chance that that cup's going to go empty. And, but, you know, by the second or third set, you have no idea what's going on. The opponent knows you better than you know them. And essentially, you have no chance of, um, of finishing the match strongly and winning the match, even though you started so well with a, with a full cup of water. So those two analogies have, have served well teaching that over the years. Those are fantastic. I haven't heard either of those, but I'm certainly going to use them. So when you talk about the storm cloud coming, to me, what I hear is that's the 40 to 45% of points you're pretty much guaranteed to lose every single match you play. Uh, but um, there, or, or no? Yes and no. Yes and no. Because for some players, yes, which is ridiculous, is that, you know, they're losing a point and, and they act like they shouldn't ever lose a point. I mean, you know, it's, I, I did a, another course with Jeff Greenwald uh, called Getting Tight. And, and Jeff had this amazing story in there. You know, it, it's okay to lose points and you have permission to miss. And permission to miss is such a, a great phrase is that if you're running the right strategy and hitting the ball to the right part of the court and you miss it, you have permission to do that. And, you know, combine that with knowing that if you win 6-3, 6-3, you're still losing 45% of all points you play. If you're number one in the world, you're, still, you're only winning 55% of all points you play. And the idea that Jeff also has is a quota. You know, if you go on the court and say, I'm okay to lose six games in this match. I'm fine. You know, if I, if I win three and three, I'll take that right now. I'll sign up for that. So if you already give the quota of, you know, the opponent can win six games, when they win one game and two games and three games, you know, it's not freaking you out because you've already preloaded that in. So the idea of permission to miss and the idea of quota is really, really good for tennis because it's just reality. We want to win all points, but the reality is 55-45 is going to make you number one in the world. So people, like like you said, it shouldn't be this way, but people are somehow still surprised that they're losing points in games in a, in a competitive match. And some of the way they lose those points seem to consistently affect people the same way. So the first example that came to my mind was if you're playing doubles at any level and you get beat down the line with a return in the alley. You know, I think... Yeah. From, from your research, it's, hey, the ball's going through the center window. That's what you want to dominate. You can't lose two sets from down the line alley returns. And yet people feel like that costs like five points or something. That, that's the vibe I get. How do yeah. you use the information out there to help soothe that anxiety for those low percentage loss points? Well, the first thing I, I show them is this the center window video. There's a point from an old tournament in Las Vegas. It's the Bryan brothers playing early Graham. You've got, I think, nine shots in the rally and every single ball goes through the center window. I use dartfish to, to make a yellow area for the center window. And I, I put black dots where the ball's going through that area and just show them that that is the high percentage area. You know, a doubles court is like an hourglass. You have the, you know, a big area at the baseline and the baseline, but a small funnel right above the net where the ball's constantly going through. And that's the area to dominate. Um, I also talk about the rule of three is that, if you uh, get beaten down the alley once, still go to the middle. You get beaten down the alley twice, still go to the middle. If you get beaten down the alley a third time, it's now got your attention. It's now got your attention. doesn't mean that you're going to abandon the middle at all, that you're going to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to look at that. You know, when I, in college and in juniors, I mean, I love playing doubles. Doubles was my jam. And I would quite often keep a running tally of, of the alley. How many times my opponent went down the alley and was successful with it and not successful. So I, I would actually count. It's like they go down the alley and miss. I'm like, that's one for me. They make one, okay, we're back to zero. And, you know, they're, they're never, they're never getting 
beyond plus three and that, you know, then I'm going to start to shut it down. But a lot of times the player that's getting beaten down the alley, the real reason is the player, your partner at the back is hitting the ball too wide. You know, if you're the serving team, especially, you want to keep the ball in the middle of the court to enable the net player to go and and get the middle of the court because it's not opening up that wide angle. You know, once you look at the center window and how many balls go through there and the, the traffic that's through there, that's, that's kind of where that conversation starts. And, and, and tell them it's okay. It's okay to get beaten down the alley. And one quick story with that is I remember watching a U.S. Open final. I believe there was two Chinese players against Safina and Shrabotnik. And I think it was first point of the match. I think it was Shrabotnik was serving, and the Chinese player went straight down the line of Safina. Second point of the match, the return goes straight down the line. And I thought that was magnificent because for the rest of the match now, uh, Safina and Shrabotnik are now looking for that ball down the line. So they're going to cover that ball down the line and it's leaving that center window area wide open for the, for the Chinese team to go and um, to go and take control of that right now. So I think if you're returning, I think going down the line in the first game is a great idea. It doesn't matter if you win or lose the point. It's you're sending a message to hopefully hold that player on the line for, for the next hour and a half. And, and then just enabling you to hit through the middle of the court and control the middle of the court as much as you possibly can. Looking ahead, you have all these decades of information. You've been studying patterns of play. What do you think the next big tactic or strategy will be in the next 10 to 15 years? T- uh, tennis goes in waves, like, like life. You know, there's there's waves of, of um, dominance. And, and that's certainly dictated a little bit by the court surface and the court speed and the balls that are used. I think what, you know, the work that I'm doing to clearly show that going to the net is an amazing strategy, even in today's game, you know, people will say, Craig, you know, the athlete is faster. They're going to get to more balls. They're going to hit more passing shots. The rackets are uh, more powerful. They're going to get the ball quicker past the, the net player. The strings you put more spin on it, you're easier to pass. All those things are correct. But consistently, you're still winning 65% at net. That, that's what it's going to be here at the Australian Open. It's, for the men, it's going to be 65% because it's at every slam, it's basically 65%. Serve and volley is going to be 65% points one. The baseline for the men is going to be 46. And the baseline for the women is going to be 47 because it always is. So the more that I can have the discussion about the net and serve and volley, Coming, starting from an analytical standpoint, the more people I think will buy into that and say, going to the net's a good thing. Because for whatever reason, it just stings way more to lose a point at the net than it does at the baseline. But if we, if we just have the analytics to kind of counter that, I think that's going to be very important. So I think the next wave is just showing how important it is to come to the net. You know, And these players like Medvedev that are standing so far back, um, Nadal standing so far back, it's just an obvious play, an obvious play to come forward against them when they're returning from, you know, the third row of the stands. I could listen to this, honestly, Craig, for like three straight hours just listening to you go it's on It's fun. This. It's uh, fun. That's very nice of you, Jonathan. I enjoy it too. No, I, I, I love it. But before you go, I want to be respectful of your time, but do you have a few minutes to answer some Instagram questions? Please. Yes. Okay. So these are the top questions that uh, some of my followers on Instagram had for you. Number one, what is the tactic that you see on the pro tour that makes you cringe the most? Makes me cringe the most. 
things that make like when I'm sitting on the side of the court, it makes me cringe. When when a short ball comes and the player doesn't go to the net behind it, they elect. You know, I, I call it like a fifty-fifty ball. Yes, you could come in there. Yes, you you could stay back. It's short, and 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 players don't take it out advantage. They're too scared. There's fear, and and there's fear of going to the net because they're they're somewhat ignorant about the percentages. And I said, if you knew the percentages and you knew the pattern, you would go to the net. And that makes me cringe. What also makes me cringe is players not attacking second serves, second uh, yeah second serve with the return. Just Basically, you know, standing way back and just pushing it back into play. I'm like, what are you doing? You know, I, Rafa yesterday stepped in in practice and crushed a second serve return. I videoed it. I threw it straight on uh, social media. And I said, he is a better player because he does this. You know, it, it makes me cringe when Rafa gets a second serve and he's still standing way back to return it and just trying to trying to go even. You must attack on that. So th- th- those are the two things. The, the inability or the having the lack of awareness to come forward when you absolutely should come forward and you are absolutely going to dine on a higher win percentage. That, those, those two things make me cringe. What is the single most important statistic that you would communicate to someone who's just starting to play the game of tennis? Don't miss the first two times you touch the ball. You can miss the third touch, the fifth touch, the 13th touch. But the, the best piece of, of advice I give to a younger player is most of their errors, you know, tennis is about 70% errors. For younger players or, you know, adults that are in the 3 5, 4, 0, 4 5 range, it's higher. It's probably 75% errors. In the 0 through 4 rally length, it's 80% errors. So they're missing the first two touches, whether that's a double fault from the serve or, or it's, a, it's a serve plus one error or it's a return or return plus one error. Those four errors, serve error, return error, serve plus one, return plus one, are going to take up 80% of your errors. So if you have a thirst and a hunger to put those balls in play more than anything else, and once you get past that, I'm like, okay, if you make an error from from now on, we don't care that much because that data set or that size of the pie is just so small. So that's what I would tell them. Practice, not making errors in the first two shots, putting that ball in. And that doesn't mean pushing because what you're also trying to do is force the error or extract the error from the other side of the court in the first four shots. So you make your first four shot errors dry up and you may create the opportunity to force those errors as much as possible on the other side of the court. As a coach, where do you want your player to make their errors on offensive or defensive shots? Offensive, but by far, forehand errors, forehand offensive errors, fine. You know, go deep, miss it, a, make it a, miss it a racket length deep, miss it a racket length cross. Absolutely fine. You know, you have an offensive weapon. The, the winners and the forced errors are going to be high correspondingly, and also because you're hitting it so much, the errors are going to be high. We're okay with that. Being on defense on a backhand and going down the line and missing it, sacrilegious. You've got to go – the number one thing, defense goes cross-court. And, you, and on a backhand, the number one role of the backhand is to put the ball in play, is to not miss. So do not miss your, your – your, you're on defense on a backhand. Play defense and block it and make it cross-court. That's, that's key. That's gold. And last question, obviously, because you worked with him and people are interested in one of the greatest players ever – what makes Djokovic so amazing as a tennis player? 
Um, it, it, there's a lot of different layers there. You know, physically, he's a freak. You know, the the athleticism, his ability to move around the court, his stance is so wide. The balls that he can get is better than anyone. Um, his strokes are so simple. He, he's he's figured out a way to make his strokes as simple as possible to not break down. So technically, his movement is better than anyone. Technically, he's better than anyone. Um, but, you know, from working with him for three years, he put such a premium on the opponent and understanding the opponent, having a game plan and putting the opponent first. He's better than anyone there. He's, he's studying opponents. You know, there, there's almost never is Novak walking on the court and, and um, the opponent knows more about their game than Novak knows about their game. Novak knows everything about his game. He knows everything about your game. So he's mentally, he's, he's a, a step ahead there as well. So when you've got an opponent that, that has a superior game plan, knows you better, moves better, and has simple technique, how are you going to win? <laughs> how are you going to win? You, you, better, you better find a way. You better, you, you better improve or you better be, be willing to redline something for a long time in order to upset him. Or, or do something weird like Dan Evans did at Monte Carlo with a lot of backhand slice. Do something. I just different. read. I, I, yeah, I just read that article from you about how he he actually hit more slice than topspin in that match. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Make no like make Novak hit a ton of backhands and and just do something. You know, make the rally slow and make the rally low. Lot, lots of backspin there. So that, that's it. you got to do. Or, or you just serve and volley constantly against him. Rattle the cage that way. You know, get him mad, get him upset. And like, you know, Novak's human. There's going to be a few days a year where he goes out and he's just, you know, he rolled out of bed the wrong side. If you can catch him on those days, he becomes human. You can beat him. Craig, like I said, this has been a treat for me. I mean, the only person that I might have been more excited to speak to on a podcast would be the left-handed Spanish player that you watched yesterday, Cracking Returns. But but outside, He's not bad. Outside of him, I swear, like you, you are a coaching icon for me. I've learned so much from you, and well, I appreciate it. I, I, thank you. I, I, can't, I cannot thank you enough for uh, for this hour and uh, have fun down under. And we're looking forward to to seeing your stuff on, online. Well, it's my pleasure, and, and let's let's visit again in a couple of months, and we'll update the Aussie Open and um and and, and have some more questions about other topics as well. All right, that'd be great. Talk to you soon. Good night. Cheers. All right, I want to thank Craig for joining us today. I got through about 20% of the questions I had for him, so I'm looking forward to having him back on in the future. There was a lot of information in that hour with Craig, but two things really resonated with me. First and foremost, continuing to focus on the first four shots in the rally and have a greater awareness for how that point is starting. Your strategy should be different depending on whether you start the point with a first serve, a first serve return, a second serve, or a second serve return. Clear goals and expectations will lead to a more efficient strategy. My second takeaway was his analogy of the leaking cup and how you need to continuously fill it with positive thoughts and strategy throughout a match. I see players run their cups to empty every single day, and there's no strategy out there that's good enough to overcome an emotionally exhausted player. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there, and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we can keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram, at Stokey Tennis, for clips from these podcasts, as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.